We read the holy and inspired word of God again from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. read tonight the first 18 verses of the chapter. Text for our sermon is verses 14 through 18. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then what follows now is the text for our sermon tonight, verses 14 through 18. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. We read the word of God that far. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, In the preceding verses of this chapter, the Word of God exhorted us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now in the words of our text, 
there's given one specific application of that, one specific way in which we work out our own salvation, and that's that we do all things without murmurings and disputings. Is it true of us that we are guilty of murmurings or grumblings or complainings? Is that true of us in our own personal life? Does that characterize our homes? Does that characterize our life in the school or our life at the job or our life in church? Is it the case that we're known to others as one who always has a sour, negative, critical spirit? So that nothing's ever right, nothing's ever good enough. Are we constantly bellyaching, constantly venting our bitter gripes to others? Is it true of us that we're guilty of disputings or sinful arguing? What's the character of our marriages and our homes? Are they such that they're constantly a center for fighting and bickering and sniping at one another and arguing sinfully? And what is the character of our life together in the church of Jesus Christ? Is it the case here that our attitude toward the church and toward others in the church is one where we're constantly at odds with everyone else? We're constantly at loggerheads. We're constantly striving to get our own way. That was the issue in the church in Philippi. And those murmurings and disputings were tearing at the unity and the peace of that church. Same is true for the church of Jesus Christ throughout history where there is in the church murmurings, grumblings, and disputings, arguings. You have the members of the church of Jesus Christ then who are at odds with one another. There's wedges that are driven in the midst of our relationships to others that do harm to the precious unity and peace of the church. How important that we consider this Word of God, especially as we prepare next Sunday to partake together of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper form. And the section calling us to examine ourselves reminds us whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforward to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. Then the form goes on to warn against all those who raise discord, sex, and mutiny in church or state, and then later warns against all contentious persons. 
The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is intended to be a demonstration of the unity and the oneness of God's people in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we may not come to the table of the Lord guilty of unrepentant grumblings and sinful arguings with other members of the church so that we live in this unreconciled state one with another. In the week to come, each of us must submit ourselves to God's examination of us in His Word. In every aspect of our life, this one included. So that as we stand before the Word of God, we're humbled in the knowledge of our sin, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is strengthened so that we look to him for the forgiveness of these sins and that we're motivated in thankfulness to live and walk in peace in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's consider this word of God tonight under the theme, do all without complaining and arguing. First, let's consider the command itself. Then secondly, what God's purpose is in giving us that command. And then thirdly, what the result is of God's people doing all without complaining and arguing. In verse 14 of the Word of God here, we're warned against two sins that are closely related to each other. The first of them is referred to there as murmurings. And that word, murmurings, means to complain, to grumble, to mutter. It's the visible ex- or the audible expression of a heart of discontent and anger. The word in the original is an onomatopoeia. Recall from English class that that's a literary term referring to a word whose sound makes the same sound as what it's describing. In English, an example would be the word bark. That word itself, expressing the noise that a dog makes, itself conveys that sound. Or another example would be the word hiss. That indicates the actual noise that a, that a snake makes. The word in the original here is gaguzo. And the word means to grumble. And you can hear in that word itself, gaguzo, a spirit of mumbling, muttering, grumbling, complaining. And when the Word of God here uses that word, it's echoing the sin of the people of Israel in the Old Testament as they wandered through the wilderness. Their sin was grumbling, murmuring, complaining. In fact, the same word that's used here in our text is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the people of Israel. 1 Corinthians 10 Verses 10 and 11, neither murmur ye, the same words that word there, neither murmur ye as some of them, the 
people of Old Testament Israel, also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. They are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. People of Israel were guilty of gaguzo, of grumbling, muttering, complaining. Here God takes them out of the land of Egypt, out of their bitter bondage through marvels and miracles, all of the the plagues, sparing them in their firstborn, bringing them through the Red Sea. And you'd think that their response would be one of overwhelming gratitude to God for all that He'd done for them. And He takes them into the wilderness, and for 40 years, they grumble and complain. They complain about Moses and about Aaron and about the fact that they don't like their leadership and the way in which they're directing them. They complain about the difficulty of the way in which God is taking them. They complain that there's not water. They complain about not having any food. And then when God rains down from heaven manna, well, then they complain about the manna. Constantly griping and complaining about God and about all that He was doing. What that grumbling, complaining spirit gave evidence of was deep ingratitude. They lost sight of all that God had done for them. And the same, apparently, was a problem in the church in Philippi. We're not told specifically what they were murmuring and complaining about. But in the text, the word is in the plural, not just murmuring singular, but murmurings, plural. Indicating that there were a number of things and much murmuring and complaining that was going on. The Word of God warns the church of all ages then, of the great danger and temptation of murmuring and complaining. That was a temptation for God's Old Testament church. That's a danger for His New Testament church. When we think about grumbling and complaining, perhaps we think that's a problem that children have. And certainly our children can and do struggle with that. Children might complain about the meal that mom makes for supper or complain about the clothes that they have to wear to school or complain about their teacher or complain about their schoolwork or complain about the chores that they have to do around the house or about not always getting their way. A child can have what might be considered a, a very nice day, all kinds of fun things that dad and mom have done for them, and then one little thing goes wrong. And the child sticks out his lip and crosses his hands and stomps away and grumbles and complains. Children do all without complaining. This is not just a struggle for children. This is a struggle for all. 
How easy it is for us to complain about the will of God for us in the Christian life. As God calls us to work out our own salvation. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't like that way of self-denial, of crucifying our flesh so that our response to God's will for our life is grumbling. How easy it is for us to complain with the way in which God is leading us and the circumstances of life that He has ordained, especially when that way is difficult. There's hardships, there's trials. And sinfully, we're tempted to respond to that by complaining and murmuring against God. There's a temptation for us to have that spirit in our life in the church. So that, for example, with the elders of the church. Our response is one of constant griping and criticism. Now, that's not to say that office bearers do everything right and that there's never room for correction, but rather than approaching that in the proper way, speaking directly to them or bringing our objection to the consistory, we go around to others in the church of Jesus Christ constantly criticizing and running down, complaining and murmuring. Or perhaps that's the spirit that we have with others in the church. As we look at the church of Jesus Christ, we see all of the weaknesses and all of the sins in others. And nothing's ever good enough. Our attitude toward others is one of a a sour, negative spirit. And then there's all the other things in the Christian life we can be guilty of complaining about. We can complain about the weather and we can complain about our boss and our work at school. We can complain about the, the school and the teachers and the school board. We are people prone to being complainers, murmurers. The temptation for us is to view these sins as a, a small and an insignificant thing. We hardly give them a thought. Without any thinking, we complain about this or that. When we get together with others, we're complaining about anything and everything, including perhaps our spouse or or our children. But we ought not view these as small and insignificant things. And all we have to do is remember Old Testament Israel and the correction and the judgment of God that he sent upon them for all of their murmuring in the wilderness. And what that indicates is that this is no small and insignificant thing. The Word of God exhorts us, do all without murmurings, complainings. And then, Closely related to that is what's indicated in verse 14 as disputings. The word there literally means to 
to reason within oneself, but then it means to reason with others with malicious intent and therefore carries the idea of a sinful disputing, sinful arguing, sinful controversy. It's used in that sense in Luke 9 verse 46 in reference to Jesus' disciples. Then there arose a reasoning among them. There arose an argument among them which of them should be greatest. This too apparently was a problem in the church in Philippi. There was sinful disputing, sinful arguings among them. There's a number of indications of that throughout the epistle. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, the Word of God says that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here in chapter 2, verse 2, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And verse 3, warning against strife and vainglory. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche, two women belonging to the church in Philippi, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And all of those exhortations are indications that there was disputings among them. There was a wedge that was driven between various members on account of sinful disputings and sinful controversies. This too is a temptation in the church of Jesus Christ today. Word of God is not referring here to a defense of the gospel if the gospel is at stake. It's not referring to that kind of argument or controversy where the child of God is defending the truth of God's word. It's referring to sinful arguments and sinful controversies It's referring to situations that may arise in the church of Jesus Christ that have nothing to do with the gospel. Things that have to do perhaps with a matter of Christian liberty. Things that have to do with various issues that arise that are not directly addressed by the word of God but have to be responded to with wisdom and sanctified common sense. It might be something as simple as, what color carpet are we going to put in some new addition in the church of Jesus Christ? And there's differences of opinion over that. And maybe something more significant, to use just one example, it's arisen in our churches of late, whether to revise our Psalter or not. Something the Word of God does not directly address. People of God taking the principles of the Word of God and sanctified common sense coming to different viewpoints on that. The Word of God is not saying here that every child of God on every issue is going to agree and have the same opinion on everything. What the Word of God is saying When those situations arise in the church, 
We may not respond to that with sinful arguing. We may express our our differences of opinion, but in a way that's respectful one of another, that honors the opinion of the other, that doesn't fly off the handle and lose our temper and begin giving hasty judgments and condemnations of the other. And it means... That I don't always get my way. And I don't always insist upon my own way. So that I'm willing to allow the opinion of others to stand. To acquiesce quietly to a decision that's made in some area that isn't what I personally would choose to do. There may not be in the church of Jesus Christ sinful arguings and disputings that tear at the unity and the peace of God's church. To understand and appreciate the nature of those sins, it's important that we consider, at least briefly, Where they arise out of. In Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. And that's that same word for disputings. What's the heart of those things? And what the context leads us to see is that ultimately these things arise out of pride and selfishness. Why is it that I might grumble and complain about God's way for my life or someone else in the church and what I think is always wrong? Well, ultimately, that sinful grumbling arises out of an inflated sense of self, of selfishness and, and wanting my own way. And the same is true with sinful disputings in the church. In pride, I elevate myself. I think I'm always right and everyone else is wrong and it's Something I always have to get my own way. Sinful murmurings and disputings arise out of a a heart that's forgetful of all that God has done for us. That doesn't remember all of God's mercies. Rather a heart that's filled with pride and with selfishness. That means that the battle against these sins is not only a matter of keeping our mouth shut when we need to keep it shut, but it's a matter of the heart. It's a battle in our own heart against our sinful pride, sinful selfishness, our forgetfulness of all of God's mercies. Notice the breadth of the command of God here. Do all without murmuring and disputing. Maybe a temptation for us to seek to justify some of our sinful grumbling and disputing or to explain it away as being not such a, a serious thing. There's a, there's a place for that in this part of the Christian life or that part of the Christian life. And the Word of God simply says, do all 
without murmuring and disputing. In all of the Christian life, in your own personal walk, as you stand before the face of God, in your marriage and in your home and school and at work and in the church of Jesus Christ, do all without murmuring and disputing. It's an important word of God for us to hear as we prepare to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. As indicated in the Beginning of the sermon tonight, the sacrament is a symbol of the oneness of God's people in the Lord Jesus Christ. We gather together around that holy meal as the family of God around the same table. And our partaking together is a demonstration that we're one. That there's nothing that stands between me and any of the other members of the church of Jesus Christ. As we prepare to partake, or to examine ourselves in that respect, we come to the table of the Lord, acknowledging and confessing and repenting of our sinful grumblings and disputing. And we come to the table of the Lord in faith, trusting in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice what comes right before our text, verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do. God not only gives the command, but as we took note of last week, He's also the one who supplies the power and the strength to live in obedience to that. That power is the power of the cross of our Savior. Consider what the Lord Jesus Christ did on our behalf. He endured all the agonies and the the torments of the cross and the wrath of God poured out upon Him so that the thought of that in the Garden of Gethsemane pressed out of Him that bloody sweat. And He did all of that without complaining. Without murmuring. But in humble submission to the will of his heavenly Father and to redeem us. We come to the table of the Lord Jesus, not only confessing our sins, but looking in faith to our Savior Jesus Christ, in whom alone there is forgiveness for these sins, and in whose cross alone is the power whereby we are strengthened to do all without murmuring and disputing. The text, having set forth that calling, then indicates what God's purpose is in our doing all without murmuring and disputing. It's indicated In verse 15, by that word, that, and the idea is in order that with this purpose in mind, and then the purpose follows in all of verse 15 and the first part of verse 16. We can summarize before we look at that more closely what that's saying this way. Purpose of God has to do with our witness in the midst of this wicked world. 
What is God's purpose with His church not being guilty of murmuring and disputing? It's the good, positive witness of the church in this world. To understand that, we first have to see what those verses say about the identity of us as God's people. And there are three things to take note of there. First of all, verse 15 refers to us as the sons of God. Literally, the children of God. By nature, of course, we are not the children of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others We were conceived and brought forth into this world. We were conceived and brought forth as children of wrath. We were dead in sin and under the cruel bondage and slavery to sin and to Satan. The fact that we are the children of God is due to the the miracle and the wonder of God in saving us. He's regenerated us, causing us to be born again from above. He's justified us on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And having justified us, He adopts us to be His sons and daughters, His children and heirs. The work of God is grounded in saving work of His only begotten Son at the cross. And that work of God has its eternal origin in His decree of election. Ephesians 1 verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, eternally having chosen us as his children, having sent his son to die for us, in our own life, there's the realization of that eternal decree in his regenerating of us and his adopting us to be his children and heirs. Our fundamental identity as children of God is that we're just that. We're His children. He's our Father. As a Father, He cares for us. He provides for our needs. He instructs us. He disciplines us. He loves us. He's a Father who loves us as His children, His sons and His daughters. Secondly, verse 15 goes on to say that we're the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. The word nation there literally is generation. And generation can refer either to a period of time or the people who live during that period of time. And it's the latter that's in view here. It's referring to the people that live in a certain time. And that's not exclusive to the time that the Apostle Paul wrote those words and the generation alive when the Philippians were called to to live this way by God. But it refers to the generation of this world amongst whom God's people live throughout history. And they're characterized there as being a crooked and perverse nation. The word crooked is the word from which we get our English word scoliosis, which, as you're aware, refers to a a bending of the spine in a wrong way. 
means something that's crooked. And then the word perverse is literally the word twisted. Uh, a crooked, twisted generation. You have God who is the, the straight, unbending standard. God is the standard of what's right and true. And anything that stands out of harmony with who God is and His law is, is twisted, is crooked, is, is bent in the way of sin. And that's what characterizes this generation. It's, it's crooked, it's perverse. Twisting all of the laws of God and even the, the very laws of nature. And then third, the text says, the end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. We are the children of God. By nature, children of wrath, but saved in the grace of God. Those who live in fellowship with Him, we live in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. And our place is that of lights that shine in the world. And the lights are references to the luminaries, to the stars. We're in a, a night sky against the black expanse of the heavens. There are the stars that, that shine. Amongst the blackness of this world of unbelief, a world that's characterized by the darkness of what's crooked and what's twisted and what's perverted from the right way of God, there are His children, His sons and His daughters, who stand out, who shine as, as bright stars in a world of darkness. And what's true of us, according to verse 16, is that we are holding forth the word of life. The word of life is the word of the gospel which reveals Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only one in whom there is spiritual life and apart from Him there's only death. As stars in this world of darkness as God's children in the midst of a twisted, perverted generation and world, we hold fast that word of life. That's partly the meaning. We hold it fast. We maintain it. We proclaim it. We defend it. And we hold it forth. Meaning that we display that. We witness to it. We proclaim this word of life in the midst of this wicked generation. The text is describing who we are as God's people. We are His children. We live in the midst of a world of darkness. And our place is such as that we shine. We witness to that word of life that we're privileged as the church to maintain. All of this, remember, is set forth in connection with what's the purpose of God in commanding us to refrain from murmuring and arguing. And the connection is, 
purpose of God in giving that command is that we maintain a positive, clear witness in the midst of this world. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that ye may be blameless and harmless. To be blameless means to be above reproach and censure. It does not refer to one who's perfect. But it speaks to one where the general tenor and direction of our life is lived for God. And therefore, above suspicion, reproach, and the censure of this world amongst whom we live. With that, we're called to be harmless. The word means literally to be pure, to be unadulterated, unmixed with sin. And that's referring to the First of all, the heart of the child of God so that our motives are are pure and sincere and innocent and that then coming to expression in the way in which we live. Do all without grumbling and complaining, he says to the saints in Philippi, that you may be blameless and harmless as lights who shine in the midst of this world of darkness, that your witness not be compromised by the sinful way in which you are living. That stands as God's purpose for us, calling us to do all without complaining and without arguing. Think about what happens When the church of Christ and the people of God are characterized by murmuring and complaining. We're children of God. We're lights in a world of darkness holding forth the truth, the word of life. And yet there's a terrible disconnect between that word of life that we proclaim and the life that we live. We're sour, we're bitter, we're negative, we're we're critical, we're constantly complaining. Nothing's ever right, nothing's ever good enough. And the world takes notice of that. And we give occasion then for them to blaspheme the name of God. They claim to serve the God who is their Father, who, who loves them, who's good to them, and yet... This is the way they act. They're, they're, they're sour and negative and critical and grumbling all the time. That It's almost as if they're, they're slaves to some cruel master. Is the Christian life a life of, of bondage then? And the same thing is true with respect to arguing. If the life of the people of God in the church is one of constant attacking of one another in a sinful way, Sniping at one another, tearing one another down, sinfully arguing, insisting upon our own way. What kind of witness does that give in the midst of this world? They claim to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and to to love Him and to love one another. Yet this is how they act? This is the the way they treat one another? 
give occasion for others to blaspheme the name of our God and the word of life that we hold forth. Do all without complaining, sinful arguing, that you may be blameless and harmless in the midst of this crooked, twisted generation. So that others who see you and know you see the connection between your life and the gospel of grace which you proclaim. So that they can see in your life you serve a good God who's our our Father who loves us and cares for us so that our life is not a life of, of miserable bondage. It's a life of liberty and joy and the service of our God. Do all without murmuring and complaining for the sake of the witness of this church. The witness to the gospel of grace in the midst of this world. The text then concludes by indicating what is the result of that. Where God's people in the church do all without murmuring. And arguing. What the Word of God says is unique and unexpected. Because what it indicates is the result of this is the joy of the Apostle Paul. Verse 16. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain neither labored. In vain. The word rejoice is not the usual word for rejoice there. It literally means to boast. Paul is saying the result of your getting your act together internally and dealing with one another as you ought is is my boasting in you in the day of the Lord that my ministry, my running, and my laboring, the difficult toil that I've extended, is not vain, it's not empty, it's not fruitless. The Apostle Paul is not contradicting the truth of the gospel. He's not detracting from the work of Jesus Christ. He makes plain in a number of other places that all boasting is in the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all yet, not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And Galatians 6 verse 14, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's boasting is not a detracting from the work of Jesus Christ. Paul's work was done in the power of the grace of of God, His work was a proclaiming of the cross of Jesus Christ. The fruit upon His labors was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the hearts of His own. As He brought them to, to faith and to repentance. Paul's not trying to take away from the glory of Christ here. But His work grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is pleased to allow him to have joy 
in the fruit of that labor and how Christ has been pleased to use him so that when he stands before the Lord Jesus Christ in the day of his return, he will rejoice over the Philippians. Something that he speaks of elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20, he says about that congregation, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. The apostle is saying, when I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and I see you, Thessalonians, Philippians, standing there in the presence of Jesus Christ, I will rejoice. I'll boast, not in myself, but in the work of Jesus Christ in you. And that my labor on behalf of Jesus Christ, my running and my toilsome labor was not vain and empty and fruitless. And that joy in the work of God in that church was grounded in His love for them. That's what he expresses once again in verses 17 and 18. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all for the same cause also. Do ye joy and rejoice with me. In verse 17, that word offered literally means to be poured out. And it's referring to a drink offering. Where on certain occasions and certain instances where a sacrifice was being made, also a drink offering of wine would either be poured out upon the sacrifice on the altar or on the side of the altar to add to the the aroma of the, the smell of the sacrifice. And Paul, in using that idea, is referring ultimately to the pouring out of his life in death. He uses the same word in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, when he says, For I am now ready to be offered, ready to be poured out, and the time of my departure is at hand. Referring to his death. Paul is saying, in effect, I love you. And I'm ready to be poured out, to have my life poured out as a, as a sacrifice, as a, as a martyr here in Rome, if that's the will of God, for the sake of ministry to you and to the other churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing that, he says, I rejoice. And in the concluding verse of the text, he's exhorting them, I want you to rejoice with me, don't be Don't be sad about that. Rejoice with me in my joy if I'm so honored to give my life for your sake and the sake of the gospel. I do it in love. And that's the the sum of this and the point of this. He loves them and he's rejoicing in the work of God in them. That's perhaps unique or unexpected. As the result of their doing all without murmuring and grumbling, the apostles' joy. And the application then is unique as well. 
pastor, by extension also elders and deacons, labor in love for the church of Jesus Christ. So do they love her that they're ready to give themselves for her. They're ready to spend and to be spent, to be, to be poured out like a drink offering. Poured out in every way. Poured out in all of one's strength and energy. Poured out even in one's own life. God would so will it. Ready to do what's hard, what's difficult. What might tempt some to respond in grumbling and complaining, but for the sake of the good of God's people, in love to instruct, in love to correct, do all without murmuring and arguing. In love to, to care for, to comfort, to tend to the needs of God's people. Church of Jesus Christ must know that. This congregation must know that. Your love. Loved by God, most importantly. Loved by me, as your pastor. Loved by the elders. Loved by the deacons. We love you. We're ready to be poured out for you. And we rejoice in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in you. We rejoice to see you living without grumbling and complaining and murmuring against God toward each other. We rejoice as you strive to live at peace one with another, putting away all sinful arguings, sinful controversies, sinful divisions among yourself, but truly living in peace one with another. In fact, there's nothing that gives us as office bearers greater joy than that. We joy now to see the work of God in you and we will rejoice in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ that our running and our laboring on your behalf was not in vain. Stand before the Lord in that great day. And we'll boast of you. We'll rejoice over you. And what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished and worked in your midst and in your life. Beloved, 
press on. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do all without murmurings and arguings. Amen. Let us pray. Father who art in heaven, thankful for the knowledge that we are thy children and the objects of thy love for us. Thankful for the demonstration of that and the sending of thy Son in his atoning death at the cross. We look forward to the coming Sabbath day when we gather to celebrate that death and all the blessings that are ours in Christ. We pray, Father, that Thou wilt prepare us and then receive us for Christ's sake. Feed and nourish at the table our hungry and thirsty souls to everlasting life. Give us strength, Father, so that we live and walk as Thy children in the midst of this wicked world so that we shine as lights, proclaiming the gospel and living in harmony with that. We pray, Father, that our lives might not in any way detract from that witness, but might serve further to manifest the blessedness of that gospel. Thankful, Father, for office bearers, continue to work in their hearts sincere love for the flock. Grant us, Father, as a congregation to know that love. Forgive our sins, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We pray that you were edified by the preaching of the gospel today. Please join us for worship if you are ever in the area. For more information about our church, beliefs, or worship times, please visit our website at prccrete.org.